Well, this morning we are continuing in a little series study that we're doing on the Christmas passages. These passages get so familiar to us, don't they? I mean, we sing about them, we read about them, we revisit them each year, and there's such great stuff tucked away inside these verses. And so we've developed a little series here called Hope Incarnate. This will be part three, and we'll have one more part next week for our Christmas Eve service. Um, The title this morning is Hope Foretold is Hope for Sure. And we're going to deal with the nature of God going out of his way to explain in advance what he is doing. And this means something great to us. Now I also subtitled it, I don't know if I'll put this in your outline, because I want want you to be grabbed by the, the strangeness of how God works out his plans. Your subtitle is Harlots, Heathens, Horrible People, and Hope. All right, so hopefully you'll stay tuned for the rest of that. Let me start here, because one of the things that these passages is doing for us, it's letting us take familiar passages, you know, sometimes something that's familiar just loses its impact in our lives. We just kind of take it for granted. Well, there are truths in this Christmas story that reveal God to us, and it's this God that we walk with through life. It's what we know about him that transforms who we are, that has its greatest impact on us. So what is in these passages that is going to help us know him more? Well, let me, let me start with a phrase that Jesus spoke to his disciples. In John chapter 14, there in your outline, Jesus spoke to his disciples and he said, Let not your hearts be troubled. All right, stop there before you read the rest of that verse. Let not your hearts be troubled. So Jesus knew that at some point you're going to do life and life is going to feel troubling. And so if you're here this morning and you're in touch with trouble in your life, you're, you're not out of bounds. You didn't get some defective, broken version of Christianity that something's not working right in the version you've got. Jesus knew that until he completely remedies life's problems and brings us to heaven, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Your hearts are going to experience trouble. So before we proceed any farther, can I just get you right now, personally, to download your trouble and get in here in the room with you. All right, so I'm going to take a moment to let you do that because I, I, I know we only halfway listen sometimes. So we're not going on until everybody's got a handful of trouble. So think for a moment. What, what's, what's troubling you? You should come to the end of the year as you pull into the Christmas season, as you just are been feeling a certain way about things and how they're going. What is your trouble? Is it, is it health trouble? Is it financial trouble? Is it relationship trouble? Is it continuing in a relationship trouble? You just don't feel yourself lately and just unexplainable, just, just feel disturbed about things lately. All right, so get your trouble here in the room with you. And Jesus stands across from the table with you and he says, okay, now listen, let not your heart be troubled. And then he's going to say this, believe 
in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. So Jesus is going to install a massive word into our trouble. So he pulls up and he says, do you have trouble? And we say, yes, Lord. Yes. There are things about my life I just feel troubled by. He says, believe. And he installs this word, this word of faith. It is the word for faith. It's pisteo in the Greek. It means to have faith, to think, to be true. I like these, these other definitions. To be persuaded. Right? You're, you're on the inside needing to be persuaded of something, to credit something, to place your confidence in. So right now, one of the most troubling things that can be going on in our lives is that something out there has persuaded us about the future, hasn't it? Because you know, well, I'm not super troubled by something that's going to be over in about 15 minutes. Right? It, it's, it's when it comes into my life and I know it has lasting impact. So I'm not just noticing that there's something going on right now. I've gone ahead and done the, the advanced homework into the future. And I've drawn the line. And this is going to land in a bad place, right? So now I'm, I'm predicting the future. Now I know something about the future based on what's got me into this moment. I'm persuaded about something. And Jesus turns and says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Be persuaded about me. And then he immediately does something to awaken faith in their hearts. This is, a, this is a technique, if you will. This is God at work. What does he do? He didn't just say, okay, believe in me. He makes promises to them. He says, I, I, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Right? So immediately he puts his foot in their future in a way that only he can. And says, I'm going to do this in your life. So this is the nature of God. He says, there's trouble And I want you to be persuaded. And my means of persuading you is to tell you what your future is going to be like. And this is God all over the Bible. And if you've noticed in these Christmas stories, there's a lot of referencing to what God has said in the past. Right? When you just read through, and we're going to spend some time, if you want to open up to Matthew with me. We're just going to skirt through Matthew chapter 2 here. And you'll notice that over and over again, as this story is being told... What's being highlighted is, this isn't the first time you're hearing this, right? This isn't the first presentation. This has been said before. So this is what God does. In order for God to persuade us, he convinces us that he knows the future. And that there's hope. Because he's been there and come back, so to speak, to tell us about it. And and we can chill because we know something about him. Daryl Bach says, this is why scripture is so prominent in in both accounts. He's speaking of both Luke and Matthew. Scripture explains what apparently was initially surprising and lacking in explanation, right? This Christmas story comes on the scene. There's not a lot of clarity about what exactly is happening here. These, These are odd events, but there's clarity being brought by saying, hey, can we pull out the playbook and say, this is not odd. This is exactly what was always planned. Therefore, it's important to keep in mind that these opening accounts, 
They both introduce the story rather than conclude it. And they anchor it firmly within the plan and purpose of God throughout history. When you and I get to the Christmas story, this isn't the inauguration of a story. This is just the updating of what has always been said. And this is how God reveals himself. So when we pull into these verses here, look in Matthew chapter 2. Let's just visit a couple of these verses. Chapter 2, verse 3. When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. But notice carefully what it says there in verse 5. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet. And so when we, when we hear the details of these stories, we don't just get a geography lesson. This is not just pointing out to us, hey, you want to know where it's going to be? It's going to be in Bethlehem. Now, but what gets highlighted in telling the story is, and this is not the first time you're hearing this, God has already said this to us. And I want to point out to us why this matters so much. Why does the Bible make a big deal out of God being able to tell you what's going to happen in the future? Not only does God make a big deal out of it, he makes this claim. He's the only one who can do that. And he makes that the qualification for identifying whether or not he's really God. This is not, a, this is not some kind of conjure trick here. This is God presenting his resume. This is God saying, hey, you want to you know what makes me uniquely God and nothing else in your life can be God? I can tell you what's going to happen. And I can guarantee that it will come to pass. You got anybody else in your life that can do that? That's what God says to us, right? Isaiah 44 in your outline there. Verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who? is like me. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. John uh, Frame says, Knowledge of the future is not only the test of a true prophet, it's also the test of a true God. In the contest between Yahweh and the false gods of the ancient Near East, a major issue is this. Which deity knows the future? Knowledge of the future is a defining mark of the true God. In the New Testament, 
the writers emphasize over and over again that various events take place in order to fulfill the scripture. In many cases, the gospel writers clearly intend to ascribe to the Old Testament prophets a supernatural knowledge of the future. As when Micah predicted the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. See, this is, this is you know, again, these are familiar to us. We, we, we know that there was a prophecy about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. But this, this is being done on purpose. God is foretelling something. See, because when you get to this moment and you're going to transfer your faith into Jesus Christ, which is what he calls you to do, he says, are you troubled? Believe in God. Believe also in me. How do I know that's going to make a difference? Because the God who said who he would be long ago, right? Micah is prophesying 750 years before Christ. So that when he shows up, you can kind of get this feel that God is saying, see, told you so. And what does that do for you when he stands in front of you in John chapter 14, or he stands in front of us in New Orleans, Louisiana, December 17, 2017, he says, are you troubled? Well, don't let your heart be troubled. And you want to argue back with him, right? All, all of us like to argue with God. I want to argue back. Well, Lord, do you know what's going on? I mean, because I mean, some of us feel this way, right? Have you been paying attention, God? Do you know where this is headed? Right? And, you know, it's a good thing God's not a smart aleck like me because I would probably respond with, I don't know, do you? Because <laughs> the one thing you don't know is the future. You might know something about the past, although most of us are forgetting the past quickly. You are very much in touch with the present because it's threatening, it's right up on top of you. But quite honestly, you don't know anything about the future. So God says, everything in the future, you are completely unqualified to have a conversation with me about. The one thing I can do that you can't do is I can tell you about the future. And how do we know that? Well, he installed moments for us where he foretold what was going to happen. Not just so that'd be a curious point, but that so we would know something about him, about the nature of God. That he could stand in our trouble and say, don't be troubled because I've, I've been there. I know what's coming and I know who I am in your life. And I know how the future operates because I operate the future. It doesn't just happen. It happens because of me. Right? And this is who God is calling us to believe in. So this is not just a cool story about somebody mentioned beforehand that it'd be Bethlehem. This is God's resume getting set in front of you where he says, you want to hire me to manage your future? Or is there somebody else you want to trust? Or something else you want to trust? Something about you you want to trust instead? So I'm, I'm here for hire. You want to put your faith in me? And the Lord does this throughout scripture. Genesis chapter 15. Quick running, quick running. This, and then this is why prophecy is in scripture. It's, it's supposed to keep informing us. Genesis 15, this is spoken to Abraham. So you're 2,000 years or so before Christ. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But 
I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. This is God foretelling that there would be a 400 year period in which his people, Abraham's descendants who were being made these promises, were going to seem like they were way off course. And how good of God to say in your future, you're going to have these squiggly lines where it looks like this cannot be what God was in charge of. Because it'll be, it'll be a few hundred years before these events begin to wear out the people of God. And how kind of God to have said, I, I told you about this day. Because you know, if God knows about this day and everything else I know about God, that kind of helps me live in it, doesn't it? Because I know it's not out of control. I know God's not freaked out. I know God's not wondering how on earth did you get here. I, I'll get back with you. I'm like, geez, I'm going to have to come up with something for you. you know, the God's not responding that way, even in 400 years of enslavement. Isaiah 44, so you fast forward quite a bit to about the 700s BC. And Isaiah is prophesying now. He says, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord. Who made all things. Who alone stretched out the heavens. And who spread out the earth by myself. Who confirms the word of his servant. And fulfills the counsel of his messengers. Who says of Jerusalem. She shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah. They shall be built. And I will raise up their ruins. In verse 28. Who says of Cyrus. He is my shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Now listen, this is one of those verses that, if you don't know a little bit about the history of Israel, you have no idea what you just read, do you? This is is one of those moments where I tell you, it's a good thing to learn to read the Bible. Because that's a powerful, powerful, powerful verse that if you know what it's talking about, it has everything to do with how you feel about tomorrow and and whether or not in your trouble, you're going to trust God for the future, right? Here's what's all inside that verse. It's late 700s BC, 730, 740 BC. Isaiah is prophesying and right in this moment, everything's cool in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's fine. You know, so this is a strange thing to say. There's no rebuilding going on. There's no need for rebuilding going on. It's, it's 730 BC. So Isaiah, what the heck are you talking about? And at this moment, the warnings from the prophets are coming to God's people. That and the Assyrians, now keep up with all these players, the Assyrians, this group of nations to the north, are going to come down and they're going to besiege northern parts of the nation of Israel. So the southern parts are going to escape this besiegement. So the southern parts are Jerusalem and Judah. So they're going to be alright for a season. But in the north, they're going to be overrun and they're going to be hauled off out of the, out of the country. Then about 140 years later, right, after, well, actually this has been going on for a while, all the way to 600 BC, another ruler, not an Assyrian though, a whole other set of nations is going to overthrow the Assyrians and they're going to be Babylonians. 
And the Babylonians under a guy named Nebuchadnezzar are going to show up in the southern part of the kingdom and overthrow Jerusalem and burn it to the ground and lay the land waste. Now all of a sudden what Isaiah had to say starts to make sense. But then... About 60 years after that, the Babylonians aren't going to be in power anymore. A group from the east is going to be in power and they're going to be Persians. And a guy named Cyrus is going to be the ruler of the Persians. And God is going to pick him up and move him to come and set his people free from the captivity that they've been in. And they will return now to Jerusalem and they will do all that he said. And they will rebuild the cities, Jerusalem in the temple. But God said all this in 730 BC. The events won't take place for another 130 plus years. Over the next 200 years, everything he said in advance is going to come to pass. Why does God do this stuff? To give you his resume. To be able to say, hey, you remember I told you this in advance, right? Because I'm the guy who knows what's going to happen. This is, this is where hope gets lost, isn't it? Because we lose our hope in the midst of what we think is going to happen. But you and I don't know what's going to happen. God knows what's going to happen. Isaiah 48, a little bit later, God says, Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of the Lord, and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord. Verse 3, The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth, and I announced them. Then... Suddenly, I did them. That's an important distinction. And they came to pass. Verse 5. I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you. Lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. So why does God tell us these things in advance? To guard us from giving credit to our idols. This is a tough one. This is a particularly tough one for a people with as much resources as you and I have. We're American people. Got a lot of resources. We've got education, we've got opportunities, we've got bank accounts, we've got savings, we can borrow. There's a lot that we can do in our lives. And so here you are today, wherever you are in your life, wherever you are in your career, wherever you are in the hobby that you like the most, in the thing that you always wanted to do, whatever you wanted to grow up and be, here you are. And in your heart, how'd you get here? You made the right moves. You made the right decisions. You're smart early on. You got around the right people. You're a hard worker. You learned some things when you were younger. My dad always taught me, right? And this is how we talk about life. And so at the end of the day, the life that is scripted for us, the thing that we're living right now, it's very easy for us to not even see God in the picture. We're here because of something we did or because of something somebody else did or good luck, good luck. Don't get around me and say good luck. Right? That's a horrible phrase. What, what, do you, what are you believing in? Well, you know, just life is just a crapshoot. You know, it's just, a, who knows what's going to happen. Yeah, good luck. Hope it, yeah, whatever. Hey, no, no, no. That's not the God in the Bible. 
But God in the Bible says be very careful that when you find yourself living at a particular address, you don't ascribe that to something else besides me. Right? Did you notice this is loaded language? This is some theologically heavy stuff. Are you guys looking in your Bibles with me? Because you need to see this with your own eyes. Verse 3, the former things I declared, I declared them of old. They went out from my mouth. I announced them, then suddenly I did them. You did them, God? I did them. See, the future is not something that happens to you and God. You know, who knows what it's going to be? It's just going to happen. And, you know, God's a prophet, but he's kind of like a weatherman prophet. You know? And we got some pretty sharp weathermen these days. I mean, I'm always amazed these guys follow these hurricanes, you know. I mean, Nash Roberts was a prophet before his time. You guys know from New Orleans. But, you know, they'd always predict, you know, the storm's going to go this way and it would go that way. It would just do stuff that they never... But they've gotten pretty good about it, right? I mean, they give you like three, four days notice and they're off by, you know, maybe 60, 100 miles. Not bad. And you can start thinking, well, maybe that's how God is, right? He's just like a sharp weatherman. He's got a lot of data. He's got, you know, I don't know, he's got religious buoys floating around out there in the universe. And he pays attention to details and he knows. I mean, he's got all this history. So he stands at this moment with you and he says, don't let your heart be troubled. I predict the future. Is that, is that what you think God is doing? Because when you read this, this is, this is hard stuff. This is deep stuff. God's not a weather man. He's a weather maker. So when he stares off in your future, he doesn't say, you know, based on my data and your personality and the trends, I predict in the future your life is going to be right here. I don't know. God's the weather maker. He says, I announce it and suddenly I do it. And that's a good thing. That's a troubling thing too though. Because sometimes things don't exactly go the way we even think is good or right. And how can God be involved in that? And, and that's a hard one, right? But God does some interesting things. Back up into Matthew with me here. Let's just look for a second at Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. Craig Keener says, Matthew accounts, his account of Jesus' childhood set the stage for Jesus' ministry. Depicted in the rest of the gospel, Defining his origin and goal, Matthew builds almost every paragraph following the genealogy and preceding the Sermon on the Mount around at least one text of Scripture. So when you start reading the beginnings of Matthew, when you start reading this Christmas story, it is reaching back over and over and over again for this, I told you so, I told you so, I promised, I made good on my promise, didn't I? God is over and over again saying, this is happening exactly the way I said it would happen. And don't overlook that, because if you overlook it, and Jesus stands and says, let not your heart be troubled, you got nowhere to go toward him. Because if he doesn't know your future, you can't, you can't entrust it to him. And you won't. Right? Look at this. These are interesting, right? Here's, this book opens up with a, a genealogy. If you've ever read through genealogies, they're just the most exciting thing in the Bible, aren't they? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Obviously, Matthew doesn't care if anybody reads his book. He starts with a list of names. But maybe that's important. Maybe it's important to say, he's the the son of Abraham. Well, why would that be? Well, because 
Back in Genesis chapter 12, God made a promise to a man named Abraham that from him all the nations would be blessed. And in him was the seed that would be the savior of the world. So it's very important that we see that when Jesus comes and is born in Bethlehem, it's God making good on a promise that he made to Abraham. And then the rest of this genealogy is loaded with opportunities for us to say, okay, I don't get God, but I trust him. Right? And unfortunately, we read these names too fast. But if you just read a few of these, right? Verse 3. Judah fathers Perez by Tamar. And we just move on. Right? And again, this is where you need to read your Bibles. Because right now, if you know who Tamar is, you're going, ooh, that's a colorful girl. Right? And Judah, well, he's quite a character. Right? Do you know their story? They're in the genealogy of the Son of God. Right? Judah has children and one of his sons marries a girl named Tamar. And he dies. And Judah is supposed to get one of his other sons to make good on having children for Tamar to be able to raise in the family. And family goes bad. They don't fulfill their obligation to her. So she goes off, woman on her own, having to take care of herself. And she plots a plan to trick Judah. And she disguises herself as a prostitute. And when Judah comes into her town, he doesn't recognize who she is. And he sleeps with her. This is, this is in the lineage of the Son of God. Right? God just happens to be in town. He goes and sleeps with the prostitute only to find out later it's his daughter-in-law. And she gives birth to Perez who is in the lineage of the Messiah. Right? And then you got some other colorful characters in here. Verse 5, it says, fathered by Rahab. You guys remember who Rahab was? Rahab is a Gentile harlot in the promised land that makes a deal with the spies. Remember her? she ends up contributing to the lineage of the Messiah. Verse 6, David fathered Solomon through the wife of Uriah. <laughs> That's kind of highlighting something. It's like, whoa, whoa, what? The dude fathered Solomon who would be in the lineage of the Messiah through another man's wife? Yeah, well, yeah. And then he ends up killing the other man's husband, uh, other woman's husband. And that's, all right, so at this moment, you're just reading this. Are you thinking as you travel through this that God's plan is off course? Right? God has promised these descendants are going to have this Messiah in the lineage. But along the way, this sure looks like, oops, someone dropped the ball. This can't be God's will. There's prostitutes involved, for goodness sake. Be careful because sometimes God is in places that you and I just have a hard time seeing him. But he's making good on his promises and that's what he's showing us in these passages. Look in verse 22. uh, Chapter 1 there, Matthew. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Particularly this prophet is Isaiah, some 700 plus years before. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Right? This took place to fulfill.
fulfill, pay attention, to fulfill the word that was already spoken. Now look down in chapter 2 verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Right, and this is a passage, I won't read it again because we've already done this one. Uh, Bethlehem is going to be the place in which the Messiah is born. All right, but if you follow the details of the story, this is, this is not an easy thing to pull off. Because Mary and Joseph have been chosen by God to be the, the parents in this setting. Well, the only problem is Mary and Joseph don't live in Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph live far to the north in Galilee. Bethlehem is far to the south, south of Jerusalem. So, how, how are we going to get this couple to show up in Bethlehem so that God can fulfill his promise? Because if they decide, ah, we're just going to stay home. You know, well, why would we go anywhere anyway? I'm about to have a baby, Joseph. Whose idea is this that we should travel? Well, not exactly his, but look in Luke chapter 2. You know, the government never has been convenient. Luke chapter 2 verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David. Now this just looks like matter of fact stuff, right? And for for Mary and Joseph, this is extremely inconvenient. She's going to be traveling late in her pregnancy. A distance to a town where they have no arrangements when they get there. And normally towns were very hospitable. But because lots of people are traveling to places that are unusual... All the hospitality is used up by the time they get there. So they show up in a town. They've got no reservation. No plan to be there. And she's about to give birth at any moment. And they find, obviously we know the the manger scene comes out of this. But can you stare at this just for a second and see how did God get them? God get them. Because remember he decrees things and he does them. How did God get them from northern Galilee to a little town in Bethlehem. Would you have ever imagined that he used a corrupt emperor to do that? Because the reason why emperors and the government took censuses and they wanted you to register, well, it was a couple of reasons. One, they wanted to, they wanted to get better in touch with their tax base. So they, they did this so they could tax you. If they can find you, they can tax you. And they did this as well to have an idea of what's the condition of the land. How many soldiers do we need here in order to repress these people? So this was not anything to look forward to. This was not like going to register for the lottery. Maybe we're going to win a prize. Now they knew. This is part of Roman oppression. That's what this is. So we're going to have to travel all the way across the country to a location where we've got no arrangements to be there because this corrupt government here wants to steal more money out of our pockets and make sure they've got enough soldiers here to oppress us. That's the circumstances. Does anybody stare at that kind of circumstance and go, but God is fulfilling his promise? We don't do that, do we? But that's exactly what God is doing. Matthew chapter 2 verse 13. It says, now when they departed, behold, an angel 
of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Right? There were these details that God gave so that you and I and all who would believe in Christ would be able to look back and say, there's this one individual in human history who fulfills all that was foresaid about him. Well, he needed to come out of Egypt somehow. And how does God get them into Egypt? By a menacing threat to their lives. And if you felt threatened where you had to flee in a refugee-styled fleeing, would you be sitting in that moment saying, God is at work right now. God is at work. Would you be doing that? I, I don't think I would. I would be thinking God has lost control. What's wrong here? Where is God? Well, he's fulfilling his promise. That's where he is. Look in verse 16. It says, Then Herod, when he saw... That he had been tricked by the wise men became furious and he sent and killed all the children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. We all know this story. But we dehumanize it and move past it pretty quickly. You know when it's hard to recognize God is at work? When you personally know one of those mothers... Who just had soldiers come and kill her son. Who was a year and a half old. Just as Jeremiah the prophet said. That would happen. See it's kind of hard. This is why I said this is deep and this is hard isn't it. God knows what's going to happen in the future. Even that kind of stuff. Even that kind of stuff. Why doesn't he stop it? If you know these people are going to be enslaved for 400 years, why don't you just decree something different? If you know that these murderous individuals are going to kill babies two years and under, if you know that in advance, I don't know. I don't have everything about God figured out. But God tells me these things strangely in order to comfort me. In order to inform me that he knows the future and the future cannot escape his grasp. It's not that it might happen. He knows and is actively making sure the future will exist the way he said it would. And the second he can't say that, you and I ought to become the most insecure people ever. Because that means you have no idea what's in your future, do you? 
And though God might hope it's going to be nice, like the weatherman, he can't really guarantee it, can he? Because it could surprise him. That's not the future. That's not the future that God knows. Matthew chapter 2, verse 19. One more familiar passage here. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So now he's going to go way back to the far north again. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. How did Jesus end up in Nazareth? To fulfill God's promise and prediction that that's where he would be. His dad was chicken. Chicken. What's the matter, Joseph? You're afraid of Archelaus? What's the matter? You don't have any faith in God? God has rescued you. He's done miracles. Angels have spoken to you. He brought you to Egypt. Now he's communicated for you to come back. And you don't think God can take care of a little guy named Archelaus? Listen, I, I know if you get counsel sometimes from other Christians, that's what it can sound like, right? So can, can you just kind of take a little bit of pressure off? God is managing the future. You see all the variables involved in this stuff? Right? And this is, this is the hard part, right? There's, there's means. God is going to reach into the future. And so he and I stand here today. He says, hey, don't be troubled. I got this. And he reaches into the future and he uses whatever he uses to accomplish the purpose that he has for our lives to enter into. But the thing that throws us off is the means that God uses. They seem dull, corrupt, uncooperative, problematic. There's harlots involved. There's heathen rulers involved. There's people motivated for sinful reasons to do the things that they're doing. There's control and manipulation. None of this sounds godly. There's fear. Even the people following God, they're full of fear. Oh, right. And so we would be people who teach faith, right? We would trust God. And if you got full of fear and you made a decision, you could be thinking, oh, my life is over. I'm off course. There's no way. Look, the Bible's full of stuff, means that God used to accomplish his purpose that you never would have thought he could use that, right? Now, why is it that when I look back on these things, I can get that? But if I look into the future, for me to feel like I'm, I'm in the middle of what God's got for my life, my wife has to be perfect, my children have to be perfect, my job has to be perfect, the economy has to be perfect, God knows we need the right president. I mean, we've got a whole list of stuff like, oh, if everything's not right, oh, how can we be at peace? Where do we get these ideas from? Well, it might be because we don't pay attention as much to the God who is in control of our lives as much as the idols that are involved in our lives. See, this is a bad habit, right? I am where I am because of why again? Because I did this and I did that and I stayed away from that and I read my Bible regularly and 
I tithe. I do good things and I stay away from bad things and I was raised right. And I, all this stuff located in us. And then when you look into your future, that's a bad thing you just installed in your life because you, you can't possibly see God at work in bizarre ways. Everything's got to be just right for God to do good stuff in your life. And yet, we get this whole Christmas story not because everything was just right, but because God accomplishes what he says he's going to do. Right? Go back to Isaiah for a visit here. Isaiah 46 says, Remember this. And he's speaking to us too. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God. There is no other. I am God. There's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times things not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east. A man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed. I will do it. Now, this is God's resume. Right? This is God presenting his resume. So that when Jesus stands and says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Well, what kind of God are you believing in? Believe in this God. Believe in the God who long ago said exactly what the future would be because he is the Alpha and the Omega. He knows every last ounce of existence thoroughly. Nothing will ever surprise him or escape who he is. Your future is in that God's hands. That's why he can say, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I've, got, I've made you promises. There's a future that I have in store for you. And so here we are this morning. And you're looking into the future with whatever trouble you just downloaded earlier into your life. What are you seeing? And what's it doing to your heart as you see it? Right? Is, it is it troubling you all the more this morning just to think what might happen next in this category? How it might just get worse? Listen, all you and I have, right? This is, this is the creatures that we are. We, we, we have a past, we have memories, we have information about people, events, economy, personalities, whatever. We have a present, this is what's going on right now, and then there's a future. And, and you and I are in the business of fortune telling, right? We're, do you ever think of yourself as a fortune teller? Right? We're fortune tellers, right? We want to predict the future, but all you got is the past and what's going on right now. How do you predict that? Well, you know, most of us just, you know, I use my math background and I take my dots and there's a dot here, 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 and future right here. I just, you know, draw a line in the dots and say, okay, that's the future right there. And when, you know, well, maybe your graph's going this way. All right? That's the future. 
And God comes and says, you know, that's not how the future works. Why don't you just leave the future to me? Why don't you entrust that to me? Because remember all the things that I've done and I've written them down well in advance, hundreds and hundreds of years in advance. I wrote them all down so that when they came to pass, you would remember, I told you so, right? And over and over again, right? Just, we, we just went through one chapter in Matthew. And how many times did that one chapter look back and go, see, told you so, see, told you so, see, told you so. It's God saying, life isn't just happening to you. I am running your universe. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Right? And this is what we take into this moment, into this, this season. Eric, you can come back up. You know, there's an impact here. And this, this is why I, I hope you really did pull some real problems into your room here with you. Because unfortunately, some of us have got this really bad habit of getting around truth that would transform us and not being transformed by it. That's a shame. I can't stand that about my own life. That I, I know things at a much greater level than I live them. And so there's trouble, right? All of us have got trouble. You're not out of bounds. Um, you're not a bad Christian. These are the disciples, man. These are, this is an all-star cast in John 14 being told. Don't let your hearts be troubled. So welcome to the human race, even the Christian human race. You're going to have trouble. And then there's this ability for us to put our faith somewhere, to be persuaded. Right? So right now, this morning, in your little land of trouble, what are you persuaded by? What's, what, what's winning the persuasion battle this morning for you? Past events and current information, and you just drawn a line into the future? Or are you believing God? The future's all about hope, isn't it? And nobody wants to be in this room, nobody wants to be doing life right now if the future doesn't have any hope in it. Right? You, could, you could pull a lot of things out of your future, but the one thing, if you really thought about it, the one thing you don't want me to touch is your hope. Right? Can I pull your money out of your future? Well, you can adjust to that, right? It's like, well, yeah, I mean, we, could, we could do with less. Uh, what if you don't ever get that degree well, I guess I could do something else, right? There's a lot of things that, that we could do without in life. But if I were to tell you right now, I'm going to take hope out of your life for the rest of your life. This is why people commit suicide. Because they've lost hope. The God who looks into our world and says, I'm the reason for your hope. The God who predicted everything leading up to this moment. I'm the reason. Be careful where you put your hope. Do not misplace it. So listen carefully with me. So I just read these last few verses in Psalm 33. And as I read this, I want you just to maybe get quiet with the Lord. Hold in your hands your trouble. Just ponder this with trouble in mind. Verse 13 of Psalm 33. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. 
From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. On those who hope in his steadfast love. That he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Lord, we join the psalmist this morning in taking note that you have You've laid in these Christmas stories your resume, your qualifications to be trusted. Something unique about you that you say, we can't find anywhere else. You who know everything say, I know of no other God but me. Lord, we are here this morning and we are honest before you. There's trouble. And we're afraid sometimes. Maybe even this morning we're just here afraid, concerned, even despairing. That little phrase is hard to arrive at. Let not your heart be troubled. Be persuaded. Believe in me. Lord, what a resume you have. Lord, there is no one like you. There's no power. There's no talent. There's no ability. There's no amount of money. There's there's no gym that we can work out in to make us healthy. There's no pill we can take. Lord, there's nothing that we can transfer our hope to like you. The God who goes before us. And knows it all. So this morning, Lord, would you come near to us even as we are just here? Would you enter our trouble as you reveal yourself to us through these words? As you show yourself to be faithful and true, a God who's not limited by corrupt kings or harlots or horrible people, or the worst of circumstances. As a matter of fact, Lord, strangely, you are using exactly those things to bring about your purpose. So Lord, would you rescue us from trouble this morning? I just had a sense this morning, and gotten up early and wasn't feeling too well, and 
and it's just a strange impression. I'm just going to share it. Just if there would be someone here who, again, this is strange. Sorry, uh, your trouble is pet trouble. You are troubled by something going on with your pet. Maybe that you're having to make a hard decision about what to do. I don't want to fill that in. I just don't feel like the Lord wanted you to be aware that he is aware of your situation. And let his nearness be near to you. And I have another impression for someone who's... Your trouble is honesty trouble. That there's some dimension of your life that's in the dark. And you are troubled because... You just can't bring yourself to bring it into the light. I believe the Lord wants you to be aware of his nearness to you. And he wants you to be persuaded. Keeping this thing in the dark, that doesn't bring hope to you, does it? But be persuaded that you can look to him and you can trust him. And as you bring this into the light, you are fulfilling the very purpose God has for you. And the things that you're afraid of are actually going to be things into which God's going to use to accomplish his will for you. Lord, thank you for much more than a story about a little town in Bethlehem. Thank you for a roadmap, hundreds of years old, that pinpointed what only a sovereign God could pull off so that he could stand one more time and say, see, I told you, will you trust me now? And Lord, our hearts cry out to you this morning, yes, Lord, we will trust you and we will set our hope in you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I bless you guys.